If you turn to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 1, as I'm emphasizing the importance that we almost that we must always place upon the Abrahamic covenant with those three promises that we have talked about in great detail, land, seed, and blessing. We've talked about the land, the land that was given to the nation of Israel. And if you'll notice this little handout, if you come to the second page, you just think about this small little place. And we hear all of that that's going on in the Gaza Strip today. And certainly what is happening up in northern Israel, right there at the border of Lebanon. So you're thinking about this small little area and the unrest that has taken place down in the Gaza Strip and up in the north, all because of Hezbollah, entrenched in Lebanon. And then you think about the various things happening in the West Bank and the various things happening in East Jerusalem. And you can mark it down over the next few weeks as we come towards Ramadan There's going to be all kinds of controversy taking place about the Temple Mount, and it's just a powder keg waiting to explode in the sense of Israel curtailing Arabs from going up on the Temple Mount. Just wait. It's going to be a major issue that we're going to hear about over the next few weeks, and it's going to cause all kinds of havoc. Now, if you turn to the next page, you think about this small little area, Israel, in a sea of hostility. And you're thinking of Iran. They're on the right. And Iran, of course, is dedicated to Israel's destruction. And they have militias. They're in Lebanon. They have them in Syria. They have them in Iraq. And they certainly have them down in Yemen. So you think about all of this with reference to the Middle East and how Israel is in such a dangerous neighborhood and all of it is being fueled by Iran that is absolutely devoted to Israel's destruction. But when you talk about this land, this land is going to be given to Israel. But I turn our focus from the land once again to this promise concerning a seed. And this promise concerning this seed, as we've talked about, was developed in that covenant that God made with King David. And we have it recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 7, 1 Chronicles chapter 17. Many of the Psalms talk about the covenant God made with David, and we read it constantly throughout the prophets. So as we're reading the Old Testament, we're constantly being informed about this Davidic covenant, and it's going to be fulfilled. Now come to the next page in this little handout, and we have that little chart on the life of David. And I simply want to emphasize this again. If you think about David, and David is very important, we know he was born around 1041, and then he died in 971. And remember, he makes Jerusalem the capital in 1004. But I'm thinking about David's life. He dies at the age of 70 in 971. And then you remember Solomon takes his place. And Solomon dies in 931, as we've talked about. 
And when Solomon dies, the kingdom is divided. So I want you to turn to the next page. And I'm just simply emphasizing the left side, Judah. And I'm emphasizing the Davidic dynasty. And you begin with Rehoboam, which is Solomon's son. And you go all the way to the final king in the south, in Judah, this Davidic king. And that was Zedekiah. And he was taken away, as you recall, in terms of the Babylonian captivity. So I'm thinking about the Davidic dynasty and all of these kings that follow David, Solomon, Rehoboam, and then you move into these kings all the way to Zedekiah, and then he's taken away into captivity. Now I want you to listen to this statement in 1 Chronicles chapter 17 when we read this with reference to the Davidic covenant. Now listen to this statement in 1 Chronicles 17, verse 9. I will ordain a place for my people Israel. I'll plant them. They shall dwell in their place. They shall be moved no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness rob them any more as at the beginning. Now if you read 1 Chronicles 17, verse 9, obviously it's talking about the land He's going to place them into the, in the land, and they're never going to be removed. But then I come down, and you remember that 14th verse of 1 Chronicles 17. I will settle him, this Davidic king, in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forevermore. So we read about this house and this throne and this kingdom, and I've emphasized these terms. House, of course, would be the dynasty. Throne would be the right to rule in this, in this dynasty, and then in terms of kingdom, we're talking about a realm. So you're talking about a house, a throne, a kingdom which is forever, and therefore you're talking about an eternal person who has to come out of this dynasty, reign on this throne, over this entire kingdom. And we're talking about the future Messiah. Now remember, if you talk about the Messiah, and I've mentioned this in the past, if you go back to the ancient synagogue, they counted 456 Old Testament passages that referred to the Messiah, and furthermore, the Messiah was referred to 558 times in ancient rabbinic writings. So 456, 456 passages in the Old Testament considered to be messianic, referring to this future king, and he is referred to 558 times in the most ancient rabbinic writings. So there was certainly an expectation of this coming Messiah, this coming king. Now when I come here to Luke chapter 1, I'm reading of this message that was communicated to Mary by the angel Gabriel. And when I'm reading Luke chapter 1, and I'm reading the words of verse 19. Gabriel says, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. So we're now talking about Gabriel sent from the presence of God to communicate a message to Miriam, which is her Hebrew name, or Mary, which in all likelihood she was only about 13, 14 years of age. But I want you to notice what we read in terms of the announcement proclaimed to her. Verse 26, Luke chapter 1. 
And in the sixth month, which is the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin, a Parthenos. She was a virgin. Betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph from the house of David. And the Parthenos, the virgin's name, was Miriam, Mary. And the angel came to her and said, Greetings, thou that art highly favored. The Lord is with thee. Now notice the words, Blessed art thou among women. Not above. Blessed art thou among women, which Elizabeth will say to her also in verse 42, Blessed art thou among women. So we read the statement of Gabriel to her in verse 28, Blessed art thou among women. Verse 29, Luke 1. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and she cast in her mind what kind of greeting this should be. And the angel said to her, and places it in prohibition, Stop being afraid, Miriam, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Yeshua, Jesus. He shall be great. He shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. He shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then said Mary unto the angel, How will this be? Seeing I know not a man. I've never had a conjugal relationship with a man. And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Spirit will come upon thee, and the power of the highest will overshadow thee. Therefore also that Holy One who will be born out of thee shall be called the Son of God. And behold, your, and it's not a cousin. Elizabeth wasn't her cousin. Elizabeth was related to her in some way. She was a kinsman. But remember, Elizabeth was from Levi. Miriam was from Judah. So we're reading it here. And behold, your kinswoman, she was related by blood in some way to Elizabeth. She has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month with her, who is called barren. For with God, nothing shall be impossible. And Miriam said, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. And as Elizabeth will say in verse 45, blessed is she who believed. So Miriam absolutely believes what Gabriel's communicated to her. And then we read here, 
in verse 38, and the angel departed from her. Now the one that we're reading about here is one that Elizabeth says in verse 42, at the very end of the verse, blessed is the fruit of your womb. So when you talk about this one, this one is, has to come out of Mary. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. So when you talk about the Messiah, when you talk about the future king, he has to come out from David. And this is something that is emphasized over and over again. Now let me read just a statement. Listen to 2 Samuel chapter 7 and listen to the statement made to David by Nathan. In verse 12, I'll set up your seed after thee who will proceed out of your bowels. So I read that in 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 12. Listen to the statement of Psalm 132 and listen to verse 11. The Lord has sworn in truth unto David, he will not turn from it, from the fruit of your body will I set upon thy throne. Psalm 132 verse 11. Or listen to a statement from Peter in Acts chapter 2 when Peter makes this little comment in verse 30. From the fruit of his loins, David, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit upon his throne. Acts 2.30. From the fruit of David's loins, according to the flesh. So there is absolutely no question that the Messiah has to come out of David. And here he's coming out from Mary, who was from the tribe of Judah. Now, if I'm thinking about it, I'm reading the statement in verse 42. Blessed is the fruit of your womb, Elizabeth says to Mary. And yet, when I come to verse 32, this one is called the son of the highest. And then when I read verse 35, he's called the son of God. So this one who's going to come out of Miriam is also referred to as the son of the highest, the son of God. So obviously there has to be something extraordinary, something unique about this promised son. And then we read of Mary's Magnificat. And we read this in chapter 1, verse 46, all the way down to verse 55. And it's cloaked in Old Testament language. But when you read this Magnificat, which you read in verse 46, my soul does magnify the Lord. So now this is her Magnificat. She relates God's mercy to her with his mercy to Israel. But I want you to notice what she does in the midst of her words in verse 54 and 55. He has, God has, Helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. Now here's the verse. And he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. So she mentions Abraham, and she mentions his seed 
So, you, so what's going on within Miriam's mind as you're thinking about this? So I'm reading of this Magnificat. But then I read of Zacharias what is called his Benedictus. And we have this in Luke chapter 1. It's based upon the Latin word that translates this Greek word in verse 68, blessed. But this is Zacharias Benedictus. And when you read his Benedictus, his words are totally focused upon what God was doing for Israel through the birth of his son, who would prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. Now notice his words. Verse 67, Luke 1. And his father, this is John the Baptizer's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, has raised up a horn of deliverance for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, who have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, that he would grant to us that we be delivered out of the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. Now, when you read these words and you're thinking about what's going on within the mind of this very righteous man that we know as Zechariah, he makes reference to David in verse 69 and he makes reference to Abraham and the covenant God made with Abraham in verse 73. So obviously within his mind, he's thinking about the Abrahamic covenant and he's thinking about the Davidic covenant. And he's thinking about the Messiah who's going to come in fulfillment of both the Abrahamic and the Davidic covenant. I mean, just look at his words. Verse 69, he's raised up a horn. A horn indicates strength of deliverance for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets who have been since the world began, that we should be delivered from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, that he would grant to us that we be delivered out of the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. So when we read Luke chapter 1, we're trafficking in the atmosphere of Old Testament Jewish expectation. We hear from the lips of both Miriam and Zechariah their firm belief in hope that national deliverance for the nation of Israel would be found in the coming of a king who would come out of David and rule over the entire world. And then we read in Luke chapter 2 of his actual birth. And when I read Luke chapter 2 and verse 11, I know he's born in the city of David, and according to verse 4, the city of David was Bethlehem. So now we're reading of the actual birth of this one who has come. Now when I think about it, 
we have to say, if you're going to have an occupant who is going to reign on David's throne, that would require a human being. So the Messiah has to be a human being. No question about that. But to occupy that throne forever requires that the occupant never dies. And only God qualifies in terms of that. So when you talk about the one who is ultimately fulfilled, the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, this one has to be the God-man. He has to be both God and man. And when I read Luke chapter 1, I'm certainly told that. I recognize, according to verse 32 of Luke chapter 1, he's the son of the highest. And I recognize, according to verse 35, he's the son of God. And yet the son of the highest, the son of God, is the one, according to verse 42 of Luke 1, who is going to be fruit, the fruit of Miriam's womb. He's going to actually come out from her. So you have to say that this one that is going to come, this promised Messiah who's going to fulfill the Davidic covenant, he has to be God and man. He has to be fully God and fully man. He's a theanthropic person. And the Bible makes it very clear that is what we're talking about. Now I want you to turn with me to the book of Romans. And I want you to notice a statement in Romans chapter 1 as Paul begins this incredible volume that we know as Romans. Now look at Romans chapter 1 and notice the way he begins this document. Now remember, he'd never been to Rome, Italy when he writes this, this book. He'd never been to Rome. He was in Corinth when he writes this. He wasn't really the writer Tertius was. He dictated it to Tertius. But when I read it, he's in Corinth. He's on his way to Jerusalem. And while he's in Corinth, he writes this, this document. But notice the beginning of this book. Romans 1.1. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, a called apostle, having been separated unto the gospel... From God, which gospel he, God, promised beforehand through his prophets in holy writings concerning his son. And then he tells us, who was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. So the one that we're talking about is God's own son, his son. And then we're told, who was made, never experienced this before, who was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. And then the next verse, when you read it, the King James, for whatever reason, says, declared to be the Son of God. The problem with that is, Haritzo doesn't mean that. Haritzo means to be appointed, established, installed. And that's the way you would render that. So I would read it in verse for having been installed Son of God in power, or powerful Son of God, according to the spirit of holiness, 
by the resurrection of, of the dead, which demonstrated his power. And then he identifies him, Jesus Christ, our Lord. But when I read it here in verse 3, concerning his son who was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. So we're talking about God's son, and he actually was made, had to be made of the seed of David according to the flesh. So I'm reading that statement in Romans chapter 1. He's God and he's man. Now turn to Romans chapter 9. And I want you to notice what Paul does in Romans 9. He's talking about the privileges of Israel. And you read this in verses 4 and 5. But look at verse 4, Romans 9. Who are Israelites... So you think about all the promises God gave to Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, who are Israelites, of whom the adoption, the adoption, Israel as a nation was God's firstborn son. And the glory, the glory, that's the Shekinah glory. And the covenants, the covenants, you mean the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant, two of the many covenants God made with Israel? And the giving of the law, the Mosaic law was given only to the nation of Israel. Correct. And the service, the priestly service, you think of the priesthood and you think of the sacrifices. And the promises, the promises. Now look, look. Of whom the fathers and out of whom the Messiah according to the flesh. And then note, God being above all, blessed unto the ages. Amen. Now you see what he's doing? He mentions the promises and then he says, of whom the fathers and out of whom the Messiah according to the flesh, that's his humanity, and then he says, God being above all. That's going back to Christ. Now he's identifying him as God. God being above all. And then he says, blessed to the ages, amen. So when you talk about him, not only in Romans 1, but Romans chapter 9, you're talking about the God-man. He is fully God and fully man, as I read it here in this text of Romans. So I think it's very important to understand various things about him. Now when you think about the Davidic covenant, again, I emphasize these words, house, throne, kingdom. And I know that it has to be occupied by a person who is eternal. And the only one qualified is one who is both God and man. He's the only one qualified. So if you talk about dynasty, if you talk about throne, if you talk about kingdom, you're talking about the God-man. And he has to come from David. Now I want you to turn with me to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, and this is the day of Pentecost. This is 50 days after the historical resurrection of Jesus. So if you think of Pentecost, you remember happens in May or June, and you would count seven Sabbaths from the Feast of First Fruits, and then the day after the seventh Sabbath, the 50th day, the reason why it's Pentecost, then you would have the Feast of Pentecost, which was a mandatory feast for Jewish males to be in Jerusalem. One of the three mandatory feasts. 
the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 2 preaching to Jews in Jerusalem 50 days after the historical event cites various passages of Scripture. You remember Joel 2, Psalm 16, Psalm 110. But he cites Psalm 16, a psalm that was written by David, and he cites Psalm 16, you can see it in verse 25, all the way down to verse 28, and that's Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. But notice what he does on the basis of the psalm. Verse 29. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he's both dead and buried, and his sepulchre is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ, the Messiah, to sit upon his throne. He, seeing this before, spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that his soul was not left in Hades, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus has God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this, namely the Holy Spirit, which you now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool, Psalm 110. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made that same Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and the Messiah. So you're thinking about what he says concerning the Messiah. In verse 30, he has to come from David, and yet you're thinking about this one who's being described. And Peter will say in verse 34, the one who ascended into heaven wasn't David. It was the Messiah. And he's waiting until all of his enemies be placed underneath his feet. So I'm thinking about what he says concerning Jesus here to these Jews. Now turn to Acts chapter 13. And I'm emphasizing his connection with David. And this is a sermon that the Apostle Paul preached up in Turkey. And it's interesting in terms of what he says. But if you're reading Acts chapter 13, he emphasizes David in verse 22. And then notice what he says in verse 23. Of this man's seed, and that refers back, verse 22, to David. Of this man's seed has God, according to his promise, raised into Israel a Savior, Yeshua, Jesus. So he again connects him with David. Now look at verse 33. Paul says, as recorded in the sermon, God has fulfilled the same unto us, their children, and that he hath raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. I have installed thee as king. And as concerning that he raised him up from the dead, and no more to return to corruption, he said, On this wise I'll give you the sure mercies of David, Isaiah 55. Wherefore, he says also in another psalm, Thou shalt not suffer thy holy one to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep and was laid unto his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised 
again, saw no corruption. So obviously something extraordinary about him. And what makes it extraordinary, he's both God and man. But he came out of David. Now turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. And I want you to notice Paul's statement in verse 8. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, having been raised from the dead, of the seed of David, according to my gospel. Remember Jesus Christ, having been raised from the dead, out of the dead, out of, from the seed of David, according to my gospel. Now turn to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 5. And notice this statement that is given by one of the elders to John. This is Revelation 5, verse 5. And one of the elders says to me, Stop weeping. Behold, he has conquered the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David. He's the lion from the tribe of Judah. He's the root of David. He's the root of David. Now turn to Revelation chapter 22, and I want you to notice what Jesus says in Revelation chapter 22. When Jesus says to John, verse 16, I am the root and the offspring of David. I'm the root and offspring of David. Now, what would that mean? I'm the root. I'm the very reason for David's existence. I predate David. I'm the root. And yet I'm the offspring of David. So I'm before David, and yet I come out from David. And he has to be in order to fulfill the Davidic covenant. So when I think about this one, and I think about what we read concerning him, I recognize he was here. I recognize that he died. I recognize he was resurrected. And I recognize he ascended back to heaven. And he ascended back to heaven in a glorified human body. And he's going to appear, once again, as King of kings and Lord of lords. And he's going to sit upon the throne of David and reign over the world. Now, when I think of David, I know that David is mentioned many, many times in the New Testament. Fifty-nine times. So we read of David fifty-nine times in the New Testament. And we read of him in the Gospels. In the Gospel of Matthew, we read his name 17 times. In the Gospel of Mark, we read his name seven times. In the Gospel of Luke, we read his name 13 times. And in the Gospel of John, we read the name of David twice. So we read of David's name throughout the New Testament 59 times, but in the Gospels, Matthew 17, Mark 7, Luke 13, John twice. We read the name of David. 
And I cannot say enough how important this is. Now turn with me to Matthew chapter 1, the opening statement of our New Testaments, Matthew chapter 1. We know the expectation in terms of the Old Testament. Then we move into our Gospel of Matthew. And the opening statement, which is the introduction to his Gospel, says, The book of the generations of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. I mean, when you read that opening statement and you're thinking about David and Abraham and you're thinking about the covenants, wouldn't you be thinking, this is the one? And if you think of Jesus Christ, remember, Jesus was his personal name. Christ is the title given to Jesus. So you're saying, Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. So I'm reading the book of the generations of Jesus, the Messiah, and then he's like, son of David, son of Abraham. And then you move into the genealogy. Now, when I read this genealogy, keep this in mind, you read about begat, 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 but there are omissions in the genealogy. There are omissions. So when you read it, it's not as though I'm moving from A to B to C to D. I may be moving from A to D. So when I read through the genealogy and I recognize all he's emphasizing is a direct line of descent. That's all he's saying. There's a direct line of descent. This may be the grandfather. This may be the great-grandfather. But there are omissions in the genealogy based upon what we read in the Old Testament. So it's not comprehensive. But when I come down... I'm reading the 17th verse, and I want you to notice verse 17. Here's a summary statement. So all the generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations, from David to the carried away into Babylon, 14 generations, and from the carried away to Babylon unto the Messiah, 14 generations. Now, when you read that 14, 14, 14, you would expect to read 42 names, but you don't. You read 41. So you would expect 42 names, but he doesn't say he's going to mention 42 names. He divides it into these three sections. From Abraham to David, 14 generations. From David to the carried away to Babylon, 14 generations. From the carried away to Babylon unto the Messiah, 14 generations. So the link is verse 11 and 12, and that would be Jeconiah. So he doesn't say he's mentioned in 40, 42 names. He's simply saying that he is going to set forth three sets of 14s, and then he divides them himself. So when I read through the genealogy, you remember? You have verses 2 through 6a, you have 6b through verse 11, and then you have verses 12 through 16. So from Abraham to David, verse 2 to verse 6a. From David to the carried away to Babylon, 6b to verse 11. And then from the carried away to Babylon unto the Messiah, verse 12 through verse 16. Now the name that he is absolutely emphasizing, as we've talked about in the past, David. You have his name in verse 1. You have his name twice in verse 6. You have his name twice in verse 17, 
And then when the unidentified addresses Joseph in verse 20, he addresses him as son of David. So David absolutely is being emphasized when you read through this genealogy. Now I want you to turn to the very last page in this little handout. And this is the Hebrew alphabet. Aleph, Beth, Gimel, Daleth, Hey, Vav, Zion, Chetet, Yod, Kaf, Lamed. I mean, you read these various letters. Now, what I want you to notice is that little letter, Daleth. See that little letter? You have Aleph, Beth, Gimel, and then that letter, Daleth. That's a D in English. Then you have hey, and then you see that wow. Some will say it's a vav, so it's either a V or a W. But you see that little letter. So I'm emphasizing. I've got it on uh, airplane mode, and it's not supposed to do that. So I'm emphasizing that dalit, that D, and I'm emphasizing this wow or this vav, that W. See it? That also could be a V. Now, if you look at the right-hand side, the numerical value of these letters, because these letters also served as numbers, if you think of the numerical value of the Daleth, that's a 4. And if you look at the numerical value of the Wow or the Vav, that W, that's 6. If you think of David's name, David's name is Daleth, Wow, Daleth. So the numerical value of his name is 464, 14. So Matthew structures his genealogy in such a way to emphasize David's name. The numerical value of David's name is 14. And Jews certainly believed in numerology. And letters served as numbers. So when I think about this, there's no question about it. He is emphasizing David, at the very beginning of this gospel, it is David. Now remember, there are various reasons why Matthew begins with this genealogy. First, he has to prove that Jesus is the legitimate Messiah through the line of David. He's got to prove it, and he does. Verse, Verse 6, David, and then you think of his son Solomon, So when you think about this this genealogy, it's coming through David's son Solomon, which was the rightful heir to the throne. So he has to prove, by way of genealogy, the legitimacy that he really did come from David and from Solomon. But moreover, he wanted to trace his descent all the way back to Abraham and the covenant that God made with Abraham. And then finally, when you think about the reason why he does the genealogy, he wants to refute the accusations that were being being spread that he was an illegitimate son. Because remember what you read in John chapter 8 when they said to Jesus, we be not born of fornication? And what was suggested by that? So if you read the reasons why he begins with the genealogy, he has to demonstrate his credentials. He is from David's son Solomon. He has to trace it all the way back to Abraham, and you're thinking of the Abrahamic covenant. 
And then he wants to refute any accusation that he was somehow illegitimate. Now, there are all kinds of things that we could say about Matthew chapter 1. But I want to leave Matthew chapter 1, and I want to go back to Luke. And I want you to notice Luke chapter 3. Now, this is the other genealogy of Jesus in Luke chapter 3. And it begins in verse 23. And when you read it in verse 23, if you remember, you read it, Jesus himself began to be about 30 years of age, being as was supposed the son of Joseph, when in reality he was the son of Haley. And the Talmud says Haley was the father of Mary. So when you think about Matthew chapter 1, that's the genealogy of Joseph. Whereas when you think of this genealogy, it is the genealogy of Miriam, of Mary. And Mary also was from the tribe of Judah and also the family of David. Joseph was through Solomon. But Luke chapter 3, when you come down and you read verse 31, Mary's genealogy was from Nathan, who was of David. So Joseph's genealogy, I think, is what I read about in Matthew chapter 1. Mary's in Luke chapter 3. And Joseph's genealogy goes through Solomon. Mary's goes through Nathan. And both Solomon and Nathan were sons of Bathsheba, as we read about it in the historical books. So he has a genealogy, and we've talked about it before. He could not physically come from Joseph, you remember, because of the curse on Jeconiah. So he bypassed the curse, but he had to come from David, and he did. He came out of Mary. He physically came from Mary. Now, you know what's fascinating to me about it? His credentials were never disputed. His genealogy was never questioned. All they had to do, all of his opponents, all they had to do was to go to the temple archives and find out that he wasn't of David. But you never see it challenged, never in the Gospels. His genealogy is never questioned. So when you think about Jesus, there is absolutely no question about it. He came out of David. And he's the only one qualified to fulfill the Davidic covenant as the God-man. Now I want you to turn back to Luke chapter 1. And notice what Gabriel says to Miriam. Now think about it. She's only 13, 14 years of age. Now notice what is said to her. Verse 31. Behold... Thou shalt conceive in your womb. So the conception hasn't happened yet. Thou shalt conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Yeshua. Jesus. Jesus. He shall be great. He shall be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God shall give to him the throne of his father David. He shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Now again, 
Look at your three words. Verse 32, throne. Verse 33, house. Verse 33, kingdom. Throne, house, kingdom. You think you're not, you think that we're not talking about the Davidic covenant? House, throne, kingdom. This is the one. He's got to come out of this dynasty. He is going to have the right to sit upon the throne of David, and he's going to reign over the kingdom. House, throne, kingdom. I mean, he cloaks the language in the language of the Davidic covenant. So when I think about this one, Matthew says he's the king. Mark says he's the servant. Luke says he is the perfect man. John says he's none other than God. And all four Gospels want me to understand various things about him. But all of them emphasize the fact that he is the God-man and the only one qualified to reign. Now, I think of the words of Stephen Neal, and he makes the statement that there is no one that has ever lived like Jesus. Now, listen to his words. If we take the gospel seriously, Jesus is not the least like anyone else who has ever lived. The things that he says about God are not the same as the sayings of any other religious teacher. The claims that he makes for himself are not the same as those that have been made by any other religious teacher. His criticisms of human life and society are far more devastating than any other man has ever made. The demands he makes on men are more searching than those put forward by any other religious teacher. And the reason why is because of who he is. He is the God-man. And he is the only one who can save. And we know he came the first time in order to die for people like us who are sinners. Now I want you to turn back to Matthew chapter 1. And I want you to just note one other thing about Matthew 1. Which is very unusual for a Jewish genealogy. You remember he mentions four women. Really five if you include Mary. But four. If I'm reading verse 3. Tamar. If I read verse 5, Rahab. So he mentions Tamar in verse 3, mentions Rahab in verse 5, he mentions Ruth in verse 5, and he doesn't name her in verse 6, but he's talking about Bathsheba. So he mentions four women. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and then verse 6, Solomon of her who had been the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba. Now when you think about these four women, they were all Gentiles. Tamar and Rahab were Canaanites. Ruth was a Moabitess. And Bathsheba, in all probability, was a Hittite. Her husband was. So if we think of Tamar and Rahab, Canaanites, Ruth, a Moabitess, and Bathsheba was a Hittite. 
But they all also have something in common with one another. They were, invo- they were all somewhat involved in sexual sins. Bathsheba was involved in adultery. Tamar was guilty of incest. She had a sexual relationship with her father-in-law. Judah. Rahab was a prostitute. But then when you think of Ruth, Ruth wasn't guilty of sexual sin committed by herself, but she was a Moabitess. And you remember the background of Moab? The background of Moab is Genesis chapter 19 when Lot's daughter, God had intoxicated, had sex with him and gave birth to the father of Moab. So it has a very sordid background when you think about the Moabites. But when you read it, isn't Matthew saying, even within the genealogy, that the purpose of his first coming is to save sinners? And all of us are sinners. And he came to do this. And even at the very beginning, he's talking about Gentiles. And even at the very end, Matthew chapter 28, I want you to go to all the nations and preach the gospel. So you think about a very Jewish gospel. But within this very Jewish gospel, Gentiles are going to be saved. And all of this is because of the Abrahamic covenant. So I think about our Lord's first coming. And I know that he came the first time in order to die. But I know when he returns, he's going to return in a very different way. He came as a lamb, but he's going to return as a lion. And he is going to reign as Lord of lords and King of kings. And he is going to establish this kingdom that all of the Bible is expecting. Now listen to the words of one. Bring near thy great salvation, thou lamb for sinners slain. Fill up the role of thine elect, then take thy power and reign. Appear desire of nations, thine exiles long for home. Show in the heaven thy promised sign, thou prince and savior come. And one day he really is. He's going to step on the stage of human history and everything's going to be changed. So when I think of the Davidic covenant, the only one who can fulfill it is the God-man. He's the only one. And Jesus is the God-man. He's in heaven now, waiting until his enemies be placed underneath his feet. But one day he's going to stand up. He's sitting on the Father's throne with the Father. He'll stand up and he's going to ask and the Father's going to give and he's going to come forth in order to take over. All in fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant. And we long for the time when we actually see him and our faith is changed to sight. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank Thee for the Scriptures. We thank Thee for the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, as we think of this promised one who would come from David, and we know him to be Yeshua. We think of his birth 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem. We know he was raised in Nazareth. We know he ministered for a period of time after his baptism. 
We know he was crucified and paid the penalty of our sins. We know they buried his body, and yet his body did not see any corruption. And we know three days later, he was physically, bodily raised from the dead. We know 40 days later, bodily, he was taken up into heaven. And we know 10 days later, on the Feast of Pentecost, he poured out the Holy Spirit, and the church commenced. And we thank thee that we are members of this universal church, longing for the day when our Lord Jesus Christ returns for us and then returns to the earth to establish this long-anticipated kingdom. Give us that understanding, we pray, as we read Scripture. For I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.